Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Tim Alcoholic, uh, also a member of, of Al-Anon. Uh, if you're not qualified for Al-Anon by the time you get here, by the time you've been hanging around AA for two or three decades, boy, you qualify for Al-Anon. My date of sobriety is 24th of July, 1993. Um, as someone said, my, my uh, home group is Group 12 in San Antonio. I do go to some face-to-face groups in London as well. So, uh, three and seven, I, is it, is popular in AA to put three, seven and eleven together or three and eleven or three and seven. Um, uh, but there's an awful lot of material between three and seven. Seven makes sense only if you know what's going on in, in four and five, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, also, three doesn't make any sense without one and two. So I'm going to look a little bit at the steps which precede that. Um, and for want of, a, of anything else, I'm going to use the big book. So we'll, I'm going to look at the big book from the beginning of step three, which is really uh, page 58. Uh, step two very uh, definitely finishes at the end of We Agnostics, and then we're into step three. And the book's very clever. It seems to recap as you go. So wherever you get to, it, it covers the ground you've already covered one way or another, just to make sure that everyone is keeping up. And for step three to make sense, I think one really does have to look at those two pages from 58 to 60. So I'm going to do that. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Now, there's a lot in there already. What is our path? If you hear that read in a meeting, you would be mistaken for thinking, especially if you're new, that the reader is referring to the people in the room. And of course, they're not. I went to a meeting for a good 10 years in my first 10 years in recovery, or certainly first eight years, where this was read. How it works is read at every meeting. Would you hear a step in the rest of the meeting? Probably not. So when it said our path, it is very misleading. It's actually the path of the people who wrote the book. Now, that's a controversial question. So it's very popular. I'm going to probably put some noses out of joint now, but that that, that, that you can put your noses back in joint afterwards. Um, no permanent damage will be done. Um, uh, it's very popular in the big book part of AA particularly on the internet, for people to say that what is written in the book is precisely what the first hundred did. And of course it isn't. It's a general amalgam of what the first hundred did. In fact, when Bill set out the 12 steps as 12 steps, he didn't ask anyone. They were doing six steps up to that point. So if you want to do what the first hundred did, well, you want, you want a six-step program or a 12-step program. Uh, the, the content is a pretty good summary of what many of the first hundred did. 
but no one did precisely the same thing. AA in Akron, in New York, and then later in Cleveland, they, they did things very differently than each other. In fact, the Akronites were horrified at the candor with which people luridly went over their drinking stories in meetings in New York, and there wasn't so much God talk in New York. So, so, so there was agreement, but it wasn't, it wasn't everyone did it militarily exactly the same way. But in general, our path is what is described in this book. Um, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And to me, that means not not really adding anything to it, not taking anything away, but doing it as it's written. Usually men and women, women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Um, to me, what that means, I had trouble being honest when I was new, uh, but not in the ordinary sense. I'd been telling people what was going on inside me for years. Uh, when I was drunk, when I was sober, before I even drank, I, I developed a habit of taking people hostage, if I dare use that term. Uh, anyone that would listen, I would tell them my woes, my neuroticism, my insecurities uh, at inordinate length. That's not, I don't think that's the honesty they're talking about. Uh, I've sponsored a lot of people over the years and a few people relapse again and again and again and after a couple of goes they're on to someone else i don't stick around uh, if it didn't work with us they can try it with someone else and the, there's a particular form of dishonesty which is common to the people i see that i've known very closely who relapsed and was common to me as a relapser i relapsed for three years before my last drink so i was trying to get sober from 1990, last drink in 1993, three years. The honesty is this. I have a problem I cannot solve. I do not have a solution. And anything I think about the solution you're presenting me is of no value whatsoever. And my problem in those three years, people would present a solution and I would run it through my frame of reference, which had utterly failed. And I would produce questions for them, which made no sense whatsoever. They made sense from inside my failed system, but they did not make sense in the real world. And many years later, I heard someone say what the perfect response is to someone who says, yes, but it's. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. The honesty that is required is to say, I do not know what the solution is. So I'm going to listen and I'm going to do what you suggest. And with the ideas you're suggesting, I will take them to be true on the authority of who you are, which is someone who is sober. And as Clancy says, doing substantially better than me. I don't have to understand an idea to accept it. In maths, in physics, in all sorts of subject areas, one accepts things to be the case 
not because one has figured it out, but because of the authority of the person who is presenting the idea. And I think it's very much the same in AA. This is the honesty that is required. I am out of answers. Give me a new answer. And necessarily, the new answer I'm asking you to give me will jar with my existing belief system. And that is good. If it doesn't, I'm screwed. If what you're offering me is comfortable and sits very well with everything I already believe, it is of no use to me. Necessarily, the solution must be jarring. It must be surprising, maybe even horrifying. Certainly not comfortable, which is why you've got to buckle up, which is why you've got to drink so much, you will literally believe anything and do anything to stay sober. Um, a little line here. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. I'm not going to go into detail, but I was very ill when I got to AA. Uh, not just with alcoholism, but with other things. There were other untreated conditions. I think that the uh, buzzword, one of the buzzwords today is neurodivergent. The label is required. I was neurodivergent, plus there was mental illness there. Uh, I got well slowly, but I got well. Possible. Just have to be more patient than other people. <laughs> um very key line. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. I met someone when I was eight years sober who was greatly at peace. But his peace troubled me. So I did not take up his offer of sponsorship. I found his peace creepy, frankly. I like the fun, snazzy, buzzy people. But they turned out to be no good whatsoever as far as the program was concerned. Uh, when I saw, I, I didn't, I didn't get all big bookies straight away. I was first few years, uh, what I maybe hesitantly refer to as right wing AA. In other words, very disciplined, uh, do as you're told, um, um, uh, suit up, show up, don't worry too much about what you're thinking, just just follow follow instructions, follow orders. I needed that to start with, I have to say. I think a, a very overtly spiritual approach would not have gone down well and would not have worked, frankly. I got big bookie and I got much more into, into the God business uh, when I was uh, 15, 16 years sober. And then... I, I did that, by the way, at 15 years, 16 years sober, because there were problems which would not shift. And I thought the only thing I have not tried in AA is doing precisely what it says in the big book, with no ifs, with no buts, with no hesitation, uh, with no diversion. And I did it briskly. I did it in about six weeks. Um, Including all the amends. So that included, I think, I think there was between 70 and 80 names and they were dealt with in, in about nine days. So I cleared the decks and I just got on with it. The, the conversations don't have to be long and it doesn't take long to write a check and send it. 
What else does it say? Uh, we thought we could find an easier, soft, softer way, but we could not. I think I noticed on the little list of speakers something about Bill C., who's a, a pal of mine. Uh, we know each other a little. Um, and one thing I remember him saying, he, he tells a story about going to his sponsor and saying, blah, 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 blah. And the sponsor says, oh, well, you'll have to go to God. And Bill says, I need something better than that. I need something more concrete than that. And his sponsor, Jay, said, there is, there is nothing else. I've got nothing else for you. Uh, so it's unpalatable, the idea of forming a relationship with God. But when there's nothing else, that's what you have to do. It's like a Fiorentina pizza. When you've eaten everything around the edge and all that is left is the egg in the middle, you have to eat the egg if you want to carry on eating the pizza. And it's the good bit. Everyone always starts at the edge and works. No one ever starts with the egg. It's like that with God in AA. No one starts with God. If if they do, they back off <laughs> because there's trouble. There's trouble brewing usually. Not always. What else? Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely, I, I've already spoken about this a little bit. Uh, anything that got me here, anything that got me here cannot get me further. If it could, it would have. It hasn't, so it won't. Which means that everything that got me here at times will need to be put on the shelf. When I'm stuck, I haven't been stuck for a long time in AA, but when I'm stuck, I have to put everything I think I know on the shelf. Anything that is true and good and right will be returned to me in due course. Therefore, I need not worry about losing something of value by temporarily setting it aside. Truth is not going to wander off and get lost. It is not a child in a mall. I do not need to supervise the truth to make sure it's available to me. So I can set everything aside, even those things which I'm certain are true. There's a French philosopher called Descartes who entered into very elaborate mental thought experiments about the universe and how it was constituted and who are we. And he, when engaging in one of these thought experiments, he was no fool apart from being no slouch. He was no fool. So when he did this, he said, a few things I'm going to continue with, even though I'm going to question everything, I'm going to sleep like a normal mensch. I'm going to eat like a normal mensch. I'm going to continue believing in God like a normal mensch. He probably didn't use the word mensch, but you get the idea. So when I question everything, I don't need to be an idiot and stop going to meetings and pretend I'm not an alcoholic or do anything else foolish. But I do need to set an awful lot aside. I, I, I uh, am working with quite, I have worked recently with a lot of people on step one. And some of those people 
have been in AA for uh, over 20 years. And I tell you, the junk that can accumulate in step one over 20 years, there's everything that's true, which is in there, but there's all sorts of other stuff. And when you go to hospital, I did a first aid course once, like a good Alanon. <laughs> Uh, ever prepared. And one of the things they said is in burns units, they have to, when you, someone comes into a burns unit, usually people have tried to treat the burn themselves with all sorts of ointments and creams and heaven knows what, mud. And they take a special medical spatula to scrape off all the gunk so they can get to the burn and treat it properly. And that's what often has to happen with people who've been around for a while going through it. You have to scrape all the crap off before you can get anywhere. You have to start with a blank sheet of paper. If it hasn't worked, admit it hasn't worked, set everything aside. Half measures availed as nothing. Uh, the steps can't be worked in a vacuum, in my experience. What does that mean? It means without a rigorous daily program, the steps are in an order for a reason, and they're in that order because we have a linear non-branching numbering system. What that means is you don't wait until you've completed the last amend before you start practicing steps 10, 11, and 12. You practice them from the beginning. If someone 20 years sober needs to ask God how to live their day, because if they don't, they will be relying on their ego. How much more true is that for someone who is new to rely on something other than self? And of course, God's will is revealed largely through the four P's of, of the program, not just prayer, but the program, the principles and the people in AA. So there's no fear of folly with newcomers practicing 10, 11 and 12, as long as there's close supervision and you're talking to them regularly and and bright ideas are one part of something. Uh, so it needs it, it needs a daily structure. I needed a daily structure. I still have a daily structure. What else is needed? Uh, very close contact with a sponsor who you trust and preferably like. If you really can't stand them, it, they make your skin crawl. Go, just go and find someone else because it'd be far less painful. If you like them too much, go and find someone else. Find someone dull and competent. Excessive attachment is deadly. Excessive aversion is deadly to the process. If you think your sponsor is special, find someone else. They are not, or get rid of the notion that they're special. Uh, sponsors are the dinner lady. They're not the chef. They're not the food. Home group service. Um, I was going to say bedfellows. That's the wrong phrase. That would be the 13th step, wouldn't it? What do you call littermates? That's it. <laughs> littermates, people who are peers in recovery. Without that structure, the ego is very powerful. When it says, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, it's not talking about the substance metonymically referring to the ego and the alcoholic mind. Very powerful. You need to throw everything at this. Uh, in my experience, the steps need to be done um, 
Can't say quickly. That's not. That's the wrong term. A lot of effort needs to be put in daily. That that may result in quick progress. Progress may nonetheless be slow for a thousand reasons, which are good. But if the time is put in daily, the progress is made. Uh, then we've got the reading of the steps, and then we've got uh, uh, just one little point about progress, not perfection. Uh, any line in the big book which licenses inaction in some interpretations is to be dealt with very carefully indeed. Uh, I've often heard people say, well, I haven't done any step work and I haven't spoken to my sponsor, but it's progress, not perfection. That's not progress, pumpkin. That's stasis. For progress to be made, you've got to be doing something. So the motto is maximum action, but the results will not be perfect. If you very, very carefully follow a cake recipe, particularly one which involves decorating the cake in some way, uh, you can follow it perfectly, but because of your lack of competence at cake making, it will not look like the picture in the book, but you made it and you followed the instructions and AA is much like that. Uh, I wouldn't give you tuppence for half the results I got, but I put the effort in and it's better than nothing. And the results are, are pretty good considering. And it's the progress has been, I've become much more competent over time. Step three makes no sense without steps one and two, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. This means a couple of things. I'm gonna put step one very simple. When I drink, I drink too much most of the time. Why? Is it because I'm stupid? No. Is it because I'm mad? No. Is it because I'm a I'm, I was unhappy? Well, no. Because I, I overshot when I was happy as well. Is it because of circumstances? No. The phenomenon of overshooting massively and doing dumb stuff, that happened in good circumstances and bad. Was it influence of other people? No, I did it on my own as well. When you knock off every other option, the only reasonable explanation is I drink too much when I drink because I'm built like it. That's what physical means. It doesn't mean you feel the, feel the craving physically. It means its origin is physical, i.e. it is beyond reasoning processes. Um, If terrible things happen when you drink and you keep doing it, if you're not powerless, what are you? What, what else explains it? And the same reasoning, frankly, applies to the mental obsession. That a drink might seem a good idea, despite my history, is the insanity of step one. And what step one says is left to my own devices. A little voice will at some point say a drink is a good idea. Now, that voice is not a reasoned voice. It's an impulse which comes in the thought of a maybe just the glow, the mental glow that surrounds a, a bottle over the other side of the room. It may be verbalized, but it's an impulse. It's not a, it's not a thought in the sense of algebra or something. It just comes up from within. Me. And, you know, given the years of very heavy drinking, and how powerfully alcohol affected me, both positively and negatively. It's not surprising 
that I notice drink occasionally and think that looks nice. Recovery is not about changing my mind such that that impulse never arises. Fortunately, that impulse occurs only very rarely and only very weakly. Weakly in the sense of without strength, not every week. Um, but it, it does happen. Very odd when it happens, because it makes no sense. At that point, uh, yes, I do have a mental defense most of the time. So my mind is largely sound. But my mind isn't always sound, and I doubt yours is either. Do you ever say something, and in the middle of saying it, you think, I shouldn't be saying this, but you're saying it anyway? Do you ever eat something, and in the middle of eating it, you think, I shouldn't be eating this, but you're eating it anyway? If either of those two are true, you better not be relying on a mental defense when that impulse arises. There better be something stronger in place, a higher authority or, if you will, power. Which is what this is all about. So that's what being alcoholic means. It means I have, I'm condemned to drink unless a higher power is operative in my life. And if I drink, I'm condemned to continuing. I will not be in charge of the course of my life, which, by the way, is the meaning of unmanageability. It's not neuroticism or incompetence or disorganization or anything like that. It's simply a corollary of powerlessness. If I'm powerless over alcohol, I am not in charge of the course of my life and what I do. The impulse to drink is unless I have a defense. This is why Fred. Um, on pages 39 to 43 of the big book, is the opposite of the bedevilments. So the, the bedevilments are true for most people in AA, most of the time, when they're new. But the perfect example of the alcoholic is Fred, precisely because those factors were not operative in his life. He was successful, he was happy, and yet he drank. Turns out there was a spiritual void in his life, but he wasn't even aware of it. He was not restless, irritable, and discontent. Most people are when they drink again, but he wasn't. The restless irritability and discontentment comes from the, the life lived on self. Uh, now, life lived on self will temporarily, for some people, for a long time, produce some degree of happiness most people it won't so the restless restlessness irritability and discontentment will accompany untreated alcoholism but is not the is not a, a, a reliable sign of it people can relapse when things are going great and when they're feeling great without a care in the world and plenty of people in AA if you've been to meetings recently how many people in the room are restless irritable discontent do they drink on the way home? Most of them don't because they are on a path towards God and healing is slow. Interesting that the restless, irritable, discontent line was not written by Bill. It was written by a non-alcoholic. What it looks like 
statistically amongst his patients. Probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism that God could and would if he was sought. What's the proof? It works for you. Do alcoholics need to go to meetings? Well, if we didn't, why would we be here? Does it work? If it didn't, why would we be here? If you're new, that's all the proof you need for now. Let the proof arise in your own life over time. So now at this point, at this point, we've said, right, this power greater than myself unlocked through the other four P's of the program, the principles, prayer, and the people of AA will unlock a power. What is the power? The direction to do the right thing all day, every day, and the strength to follow that direction the satellite navigation system and the petrol in the engine. Why does the book not immediately launch into step three? Very interesting. It could do. Why not just say the step three prayer, get on with it? And it's this. Um, to have that power operate in my life, this is, the, this is very bad news for some people. It's got to operate 24 hours a day. If you don't know when someone is going to try to break into your car, it needs to be locked 24 hours a day. If you don't know when the fire is going to break out, your fire alarm must be functioning 24 hours a day. No good having a fire alarm which flickers on and off. So I've got to have a higher power in charge, which means that uh, uh, what does having a higher power in charge mean? It means I've said no to a life based on me deciding what to do, basically on a combination of reason, emotion and impulse and saying, no, I'm going to live in accordance with uh, the program, the principles, what other people suggest and prayer. Um, that's where this is going. And what, what that means practically to turn my will and life over to God means uh, my thought life, what I believe, my attitude, what I permit to run through my mind. I hear people sometimes saying, I behaved right. My thinking is all over the place, but at least I behaved right. That's not bad uh, as a starting point, but it won't do long term because there'll be a tension between the inside and the outside and elastic bands, if you pull them hard enough, snap. When they snap, they usually don't snap in the right direction. This is about putting my thought life in the hands of God. And my schedule, my life doesn't mean the outcomes in 10 years time. No, my literal schedule today. Which part of the day? The whole day. So this is a big decision to turn my entire internal thought life and my schedule over to God. Just to stay sober. Yes, just to stay sober. Now, there's a huge amount of resistance to this. So the next two pages seek to overcome that resistance by saying, let's look at the nifty job you've been doing running your life yourself. So setting aside alcohol, it turns out, I'm, this is a bit of a spoiler, Setting aside alcohol, it turns out 
that turning your will and life over to God is a jolly good idea based on general principles, regardless of whether or not you're an alcoholic. And by the way, if you're an alcoholic, you need the power to be in charge 24 hours. But let's look at it, setting aside alcohol. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. What is a life run on self-will? And very simple. It's when I make a list of all of the outcomes that I wish to achieve in my life, and then I go after them. You might retort, well, is that not how Western civilization operates? Yes, it is. It's exactly how Western civilization operates. Everyone's always asking, what do you want? You go into a cafe, you go into a restaurant, so what do you want? Um, uh, those wretched careers people at school that come in, a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, uh, there was one of these careers people that came in to talk to them. And he, uh, this chap said to, to, to my acquaintance, uh, what do you want to? It was 16. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I'm 16. I shouldn't be thinking about a career. I should be running along the street with a hoop and satisfied with an orange. Uh, but they, from right from a young age, they said, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? How would I know? copy everyone else um wanting oh to to have a dream you've got to have a dream to have a dream come true god preserve me from my dreams i remember saying something to maureen about dreams in 1993 she said she's seen more people drink in aa on the back of following their dreams than almost any i think there's a lot in that so all of this wanting, uh, there's a placebo, so what I want will kill me, which it indeed will. See, half the time, I want a drink or a drug or something even more disgusting. So wanting is a terrible, it's a terrible uh, uh, resource for deciding what to do. This sort of mess of primeval impulses. Um but it gives you worked examples over the next couple of pages, which is very, very good and very helpful. So why does making a list of things that you want and then running after them, why does it fail? And it fails uh, for, for matters of principle. Out of principle, it fails. I'll tell you why. Uh, most people lack imagination and lack an awareness of realms beyond the material. What is the spiritual, you might ask? It is anything which is not material. And human love, people think that, that, that the love between two people in the romantic sense is somehow in another realm. It's not. It's absolutely part of the material world, which is why you care what they look like. If you care what they look like, then... It's a material attraction. It's not something spiritual about that. So all of my ideas about security and ambition. So ambition is supposed to be a good thing. You look at LinkedIn, it makes me tired to see the things that be. I have to be on there for work. But 
incredibly tiring. There's this relentless self-promotion and goals and aims and oh, this whole system fails as a matter of principle because it is trying to fix an internal state using external means. What is the internal state? This dis-ease which stems from the false belief that I'm separate from God. Why do I think I'm separate from God? Look at your body. You, we look like we're separate. Do we look like we're connected to God? No. Do we look like we're connected to other people? No. I'm over here. You're over there. The physical world is apparent proof of separation. What is the ultimate separation? The separation from what created one in the first place, whatever that is. So the world is a world of separation and, and failed botched attempts at connection, the material world. And any plan which involves satisfying material wants, including all those interpersonal ones, is doomed to fail because it's working from the outside in. As George Carlin said, like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches to your legs. It will not work. If you want a spiritual reading, there are websites where you can get transcripts of all of George Carlin's stand-up, and there are, they are extraordinary. They're, uh, uh, spiritual as anything. He, he knew what he was talking about. Not conference approved, either in AA or Alice. Yet, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, so it cannot work. And what is the evidence? Look around you. How well is it working in society? How well is it working? Have you ever met anyone that was excited to get a job? Probably a lot of people are very excited when they get a job. You ask them three years later, how's the job going? Are they as excited then about as, as they were at the moment they got the job? What about that dreaded line? about marriage, the happiest day of my life. The unfortunate thing about that is for many people it's true because it's downhill from there. How many people get divorced? So all of these plans, all of these plans have got failure built into them. Also, probably noticed, not well, not all of us will notice this straight away, but there's more than just me in the world. There are a few billion other people. They got plans too. What are the chances that all of those plans will dovetail so perfectly that will, there will never be any conflict? Well, nil. If, you, if there were two people on the planet, they'd find something to argue about. Uh, there's the joke about the, the um, I can say this because I'm, I'm Jewish. Uh, the, 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 the Jewish man stranded on a desert island on his own for years. They pick him up and uh, he's built two synagogues. And they said, why have you built two synagogues? He said, the synagogue I go to, the one I wouldn't be seen dead in. With one person, you can have an argument with yourself. There's, there's a, a, a novel by uh, a novella by Stefan Zweig called Schachnovelle, the chess movie, where he has to play chess inside his head against himself. And whenever he plays against himself, he always wins and loses at the same time. 
a brilliant representation of a life run on self-will. Because the bit of me that wants to be thin is arguing with the bit of me that wants to eat the cake. The bit of me that wants a social life is arguing with the bit of me that wants career success. All of these desires forming part of the plan are incoherent with each other. So even if my plans were to dovetail perfectly with those of the world, I would be full of conflict. Doesn't matter how competent you are, you cannot get the solitaire to resolve itself. Uh, and it gets worse. It's not just that it creates conflict. Uh, it's not just that uh, because of incompetence. It's very, very difficult to get a plan to come off. If you've ever tried to get a million pounds, you'll discover how difficult it is. Not straightforward at all. If you've decided that you want to get married to someone, very difficult to find someone who will marry you. Very hard to get plans to come off. But there are two more problems. The first one is that even if I get my own way, I'm not happy. There was a, a now probably rightly considered politically incorrect television comedy from about 20 years ago called Little Britain, where there was a, a chap in a wheelchair that was being pushed around by someone else in his wheelchair. And the chap in the wheelchair wanted, always wanting things, and he would be given the thing. And as soon as he was given the thing, he didn't like it. He didn't want it. He wanted a different And it is a perfect, so separating from political incorrectness, the inappropriateness of the image, uh, it's a perfect metaphor for the ego. Whatever you give it, it will be dissatisfied with. It'll find something wrong with it. But it's even worse than that. As soon as I have a plan which says I cannot be happy until this is achieved, I'm placing myself in a position of lack, of void, of nothingness. The void is created by the desire. The thing I desire is not there to fill the void. It's all backwards. Its desire is self-justifying. As soon as you desire something, you feel its lack keenly. There are lots of uh, Pacific overtures, Sondheim, about the Americans going to Japan. And one of the songs, uh, called A Bowler Hat, is about a Japanese man who uh, was perfectly happy before the Americans arrived. And the Americans bring with them technology and customs, and the British as well are in on this, um, uh, technology and customs and all sorts of things, architects and bowler hats. And he wants all of these things, and he gets them. And every time he gets one, he finds something else to want, and it is ashes in his mouth, desperate. And all of the old ways are forgotten. All of the old truths are forgotten. And this, again, is a perfect metaphor for the world. It does not work. The material world does not work. One, in case I forget to say, that this is not a rest. This is not a, a, a 
recipe for getting rid of one's material life or, or leaving at all. It's not nihilism because a material existence can be transformed if it's given a good purpose. What does that mean? Uh, that the if you think of the material world and all the beliefs and ideas, attitudes which go with it as an unhappy dream, there is a way of operating in this illusory world, which is happy. This is the happy dream, which is a mirror of a greater reality. And whilst I'm fulfilling a function here, which on behalf of my higher power is to wake up and help other people wake up. I can have a perfectly lovely life in the material world because I, I don't, it, I, it is not the material world I'm relying on for my happiness and satisfaction. It is my, it is what I feel I'm, I'm, I'm being given, what is coming through me from the realm of the spirit into the material world. My, it requires the material world as the place of output like a river discharging into the sea. But the water comes from upstream. Um, so it doesn't mean you have to get rid of your material life and not have a house and not have a marriage and not have this and not have that. What I found over time is I want less and less. Every year I get rid of half my stuff and wonder how I didn't get rid of it before. I've got more and more space in this little flat. Um, so it's possible to live here and live a perfectly ordinary material life with no one knowing that you've got a spiritual life at all except for the fact you seem to be a bit more cheerful than you used to be so this is not about um, sackcloth and ashes at all it's about finding a way to live here without being a slave to its rotten rules So my problem is of my own making. It's this refusal to deal with the dis-ease that I have inside and instead looking for everything external to fix it. Uh, this lesson is compulsory. You do get to choose when you take the lesson. So if you're, if you're new, you know, you may have to tread water for a bit before any of this makes sense. If you're around a while, it might make a bit more sense. I can't give multiple pictures at once, so whatever is coming out is whatever is coming out. This is a very concentrated meeting. It's not really... Uh, newcomers are always totally welcome. Everyone's glad they're here, but it's specifically on these steps. So you'll need to go to lots of newcomer meetings as well to get some... Uh, input um, on the base on the, on the real basics of recovery as well. So, having decided that my scorecards, great line from the twelve and twelve, my scorecards read zero. Drunk, and then when I was fifteen years sober, sober, my scorecards read zero. What does that mean? When I was 15 years sober, things were a hell of a lot, incomparably better externally than when I was drinking. Uh, my internal state was incomparably better. However, there were problems 
which simply refused to shift. Uh, addictive patterns in uh, behavior patterns, so not involving drink or drugs. More emotional outbursts than I was frankly comfortable with, and certainly more than others around me were comfortable with. Entanglements, romantic and otherwise. Uh, huge amounts of pain about my relationship with my parents. Things hadn't shifted. The thing about lack of peace is it is absolute. If one is not at peace, one is not at peace. It doesn't matter why. The magnitude of the problem bears no relationship to its apparent problem, um, bears no relation to its effect. Think of the size of a mosquito and how inconsequential the sound is in any objective sense and how it can ruin a night's sleep. Lack of peace is lack of peace. I have peace today most of the time. There is more available. I'm sure there is deeper peace available. But what I feel feels very like peace. And I did not have that in anywhere near the measure I do today at 15 years. So we're going to take step three. This involves adopting an entirely new position in life. Um, I think the best phrase for it is to be God's little helper. So my life is no longer my life. It now, it now belongs to God, but it is, it is, I borrow it back to do God's work. So I have, a, I have a job. Um, I have an occupation. I have a couple of occupations, but I don't consider my job, even though I do many hours a week, to be my work. My job is what enables my work. What is my work? To wake up, to stay awake, and to help other people be awake. So all of these things that I do in my life are simply vehicles. But there's a very important principle, I think, in, in, in step three. It's to do with recognizing the, the real nature of the relationship between me and God. In this passage in the big book, and also in one of the stories, the story which used to be Dr. Alcoholic Addict, now is acceptance is the answer. Uh, he refers to Shakespeare saying all the world is, is a stage, and he forgot to mention I was the chief critic. Uh, that's the image you want to work with. And it's the image which is used in the book. 60 to 62. But what does it actually mean? Um, people say, oh, I was the director. That was where all my problems were coming from. No, you weren't, Pumpkin. You weren't the director. You were the actor who thought he was the director. Big difference. You thought you were a director. No one else did. They just thought you were an actor who was out of line, who was not swimming in their lane. But if you extend this, it suddenly makes every, well, it made everything clear to me. Everything. Um, if the material world and my life in it is a stage and a play, the actor is different than the role he plays 
So whatever role I'm playing in the world, whether it's husband, for I am a husband, university lecturer, the other occupation that I practice, uh, sponsor, sponsee, neighbor, man on street, person in shop. I am not any of those things. They're roles I'm playing. My physical form is not who I am. It's the, it's the part of it. It's what I got in the dressing room. It's what I was doled up with. It is not who I am any more than someone playing uh, Macbeth is the King of Scotland. Uh, if something happens to one of the characters in Macbeth, the actor is perfectly safe. The actor cannot be harmed. This is the answer to fear. If I'm frightened, I have mistaken myself for one of the roles I'm playing in my life. The role is under threat. Why is it under threat? All roles are under threat all the time. That's the nature of the material world. All it takes is a supernova poof we got. When I recognize I am not the role that I'm playing, but I am the actor playing it, I'm perfectly safe. And then I need to figure out what to do by asking the director for the script, not by trying to read the room, the actor playing Duncan or Macduff is not reading the room in Shakespeare and figuring out what to do. The actor is following the script. If the actor falls asleep and believes he is Macduff and starts improvising and reacting, you're not going to have the play Macbeth. You're going to have a very different play. Now you imagine that everyone has forgotten that they are actors and you end up with a play on the stage which bears no relation to what was planned. So my job is to go back to who I really am, which is spirit. It says we're children of a living creator on page 28. That's the answer to all of your low self-worth problems. It's impossible to have low self-worth without having a very, very high regard for your own opinion of yourself. If you think you're worthless, you're wrong. If you still think you're worthless three seconds later, you think I'm wrong and you're right. That's arrogance. The problem is arrogance with low self-worth. Nothing else. If you can recognize you're wrong, that'll be the end of it. And I'm of infinite worth because I exist, because I'm a child of God. And so are you. And so are they, all the people in your second column of your resentment inventory, first and second columns of your resentment inventory despite what they've done they are of infinite value their children even you know who and you know who even they are as much value as you you see i wouldn't i prince in principle i was fine with the idea i might be of infinite value but as soon as i have to admit that everyone else is too oh we've got a problem now that's that's the real block If there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to do, which is problematical if your life and your identity is based around doing. So this is incendiary stuff. This is why you have to be willing to have a whole 
thought system blown completely out of the water. So the practice of step three, so God is in charge. I talked a little, about, a little bit about how to activate them. What does that mean practically, though, on a daily basis? It means practicing pages 84 to 88. It means whizzing through steps four through nine as promptly as one can. The point of all that information is not to do anything with it. It's to get rid of it. It's like a huge trash bag and everything you find you throw in the trash bag so you can get rid of it once and for all i can't tell you how messed up i was as a child um i would i want to do some trigger warnings before saying what i'm going to say uh, i would take a i was in a boarding school in it, south of england i would literally take a knife and hack at my arm in front of other people That's one of a thousand incidents. I do not know why I'm okay now. It is not because I figured it out or because clever people figured it out. I told the truth about my beliefs, my thinking and my behavior in step four. I don't do anything with it except get rid of it. You can have some useful conversations in step five, but not to troubleshoot. Occasionally, there are, there are little changes in perspective that happen in step five, which is wonderful. And certainly, when I take sponsors through step four, we look at things very carefully to, to peel back the layers of delusion and the way language is used to conceal the truth. I'll give you a great example. People pleasing. I'll give you abandonment as well. Uh, people pleasers are not remotely interested in, in pleasing people. They're interested in pe pleasing themselves. As a people pleaser, I wanted other people to like me. I was a manipulator. That's the term for it. So I would do what I believed to be wrong and fail to do what I believed to be right because I wanted your approval more than I wanted what was right. That's not about people pleasing people. It's about pleasing self abandonment as an adult I, I went through a phase saying that i, I had abandonment issues. i was frightened of abandonment children can be abandoned invalids can be abandoned anyone who is frail and in need of care can be abandoned and a military post can be abandoned an adult of sound mind who can vote who has all their faculties by virtue of who they are cannot be abandoned they can be left Someone can leave you, but no abandonment suggests that the person has an obligation to stay with me. No one has an obligation to stay with me. The real question, when I'm left, people leave my life, fine. Why am I so leaveable? It's about me, not them. And a lot of step four is about unpicking the way language is used to present myself as the holy innocent victim and the darkness is the problem these people out there and as astrid says I always quote this the calls are coming from within the house 
the problem ain't out there. There are problems out there, but they're for them to deal with, largely. Occasionally a boundary is necessary. And my problem comes from me. But the chief benefit of step five is that the person still treats me like a human being afterwards. That's it. No more. Step six. If you get to step six and you do not want to see the back of your life as it currently stands, you missed something. Uh, we've got two buttons, a green button to proceed and a red button to stop the process then and there. Pick a button. That's it. I, I, after reading and listening to so many things on step six and seven over the years, I've come to the conclusion I may change my mind. I've come to my, my, my conclusion that the two paragraphs in the big book are entirely sufficient. I think there's even a bit of padding there. If you're not willing, prone. If you're not willing, good luck to you. <laughs> I don't know what to say to someone in step six that does not want to just get rid of everything and start again. Because anything good will come back to you. You can't lose anything good by By definition, God's will is that which will produce the best possible outcome for all involved. And if something's on your step four, there's no such thing as a defect, which was a defense mechanism. If it genuinely defended you, it's not a defect, it's a virtue. If it didn't defend you, then it's a defect. It can't be a, de it, you can't have a defect, which is also defense, uh, unless the defense was harming you more than it was defense. So none of that, none of that fancy footwork and sophistry. It, it, I, I think one must look at it big, like the step one, big picture. So in step seven, I say, I'm going to turn my will and life over to God, and now I've got better information than I had four steps earlier. And I'll tell you what my job then is. I get to change by taking steps 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. If I do what is right, what I think is right, the change is automatic. Uh, God removes that which I cannot do, but God cannot remove what I can do. And in the last 15 seconds, I'll give you an example. If you're late for everything, you're the one that has to go to bed early, set the alarm, wake up, get out of bed when the alarm goes off. God is not going to do that for you. God will give you the direction and the strength about how to do that, but will not do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But God can and will do for you what you can't do for yourself. So if you want to know what your business is in the removal of your defects, if there's a material action you can take, take it and then everything else will flow from you. Uh I think we're coming down to the hour so I'm going to stop there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.